So the opening, the opening scene of Finding Nemo. The first time I saw it, and I've seen it quite a number of times, I thought actually immediately of these famous lines, these famous lines that are probably known to you, some of you, even if you don't, can't place exactly where they're from right off the bat. They read, life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we really see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, this fact that life is difficult, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Those are the opening sentences from probably the most famous and probably in some ways the best self-help book that's ever been written, The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. Finding Nemo, and I would guess that probably a bunch of you have seen this movie. Finding Nemo opens. Two expectant clownfish parents, 50 of their eggs, and a hungry barracuda. It does not end well. Now, if this kind of scene had happened in the beginning of, you know, like a real life movie, not a cartoon kind of movie, and it was geared towards kids, oh, the hue and the cry we would hear about the unnecessary violence and we're scaring kids too much. Well, that's when I realized that Pixar was playing at a different level than just about anyone else. I know traditional Disney movies always had a little death. There's Bambi and there's Dumbo, you know, but that was right in the middle. And, you know, that was tearjerker. We didn't even know the characters yet at the beginning of Finding Nemo, and bang, most of them have already died. This is part of the genius of Pixar, that they could mix comedy and reality. I mean, remember, this is a movie, if you've seen it, I absolutely love this. They have a 12-step support group for sharks who don't want to eat fish anymore, and their mantra over and over again, fish are friends, not food, fish are friends, not food, fish are friends, not food. But at the outset... Bad things happen. And the rest of the movie is the aftermath. That is the relationship between Marlon, who's one of those clownfish, and his last remaining surviving egg. It turns out to be his son, Nemo. Now, we can't blame Marlon at all, can we, for the fact that he is beset by worries. He's had horrible things happen to him. So one thing he repeats over and over and over again, you can hear it in Nemo's response that this must be said to him every day he hears from his father say, what's the one thing about the ocean? What's the one thing about the ocean? What's the one thing about the ocean? It's not safe. What's the one thing about the ocean? What's the one thing about the ocean? All right, we got that established? Good. Marlon is a deeply worried helicopter parent. He hovers. He hovers everywhere. And he knows, because he knows, that things can fall apart. He is always on guard. He is always tense and anxious and worried. Because in his life, things have fallen apart. But as all of you who are dads, all of you who are parents, all of us really know, regardless whether parents or not, the art of parenting comes in that delicate, never perfectly achieved balance between finding the time to hold on and the time to let go and recognizing that tension always exists and is never, ever perfectly done. All that Marlon knows how to do is to hold on through his worries. And ultimately, he drives Nemo away, trying to prove his independence. Nemo ventures out too far, further than the other fish have gone, and he's swept up by a diver and taken away to a faraway aquarium. Whether we are parents or not, 
this balance between the holding on and letting go is so key. Sometimes the holding on can come from that place of worry. And in preparing for this message, I looked up, you know, I like to do word, word origins, etymological studies and stuff. And the origin of the word worry is perfect. You know what it means in Old English? To strangle. <laughs> it means to hold on so tightly that literally what we have done is squeeze the life out of something. To literally, in some estimations of what the word meant 500, 600 years ago, it means to seize by the throat. It's like... Making a fist too tightly. You know, holding on to something you really, dearly, clearly love. Hold it so tightly, eventually, what do we do through the force of our love? Not our hatred, but the force of our love. We squeeze the life out of it. We crush it. We remove its life force because we are so afraid that if we don't control it, it won't be there. And inadvertently, there's Marlin's worries that push Nemo away. And that is where Marlon has to learn to rely on something deeper than his worry. Now, I have to cop to this here. Um, I used to think that the amount that a person worried was a sign of their depth. <laughs> now, perhaps it's because of my own family of origin and perhaps it because it was a vice and I tried to turn it into a virtue. I think that people really worried about stuff a lot. Well, they really must have cared. That's why they worried so much. My image of a person without depth was this. <laughs> Alfred E. Newman. What, me, worry? I confused worrying with caring. They are not the same thing. I believe now that the only thing deep about worry, especially when we are beset by it over and over and over again, the only thing deep about it is that it actually grinds us down into the dirt. And so I cop to this today, like the Buddhist teacher Sylvia Borstein once said, that she is a recovering warrior. I am as well, too. The paradox of what it is to worry over something or to be a person beset by worries is that it is a racing nowhere. It is all a kind of movement in our brains over and over and over again it is mental activity without any spiritual or moral movement, a racing nowhere movement without progress. And it is in many ways the opposite of what we try to do here in our mission at Wellsprings, be chargeful with the charge of the soul. Worry does not charge us. It drains us. It drains us down. To be beset by worries is to be held. It is almost to strangle the, our own life out of ourselves. This is counterproductive and often counter to reality. Mark Twain said many years ago, I've seen many, many troubles in my life. I've seen many troubles in my life and half of them have come true. This ability to imagine realities and worries that might not ever come true is part of the problem with worry. I love the way Jesus put it. My single favorite teaching of that ancient rabbi. He said, can any of us by worrying add a single hour to the span of our lives? And to tell you the first time I read that, I knew that question was written for me. <laughs> can any of us by worrying add a single hour to the span of our lives? Well, actually it turns out that Worrying might take away hours. Can't add them, but it might take them away. Some of you might have heard a few years ago, this was in the news, it was in Time and Newsweek, it was sort of on the covers. Type D, you ever hear of a type D person? 
The type D stands for type distress rather than type A. Type D are people who internalize all their worries every day, just brood and brood and brood. It turns out that kind of worry is horrible, absolutely horrible for your health and your heart, even worse than being a type A. And by the way, we're doing here together is to make sure that hopefully none of us are type D or type A. You know, those aren't the two choices. This connection between worry and the effect it might have on our health and our lives sort of pointed out in Finding Nemo, a group of people, if you will, well, actually, they're turtles who help Marlin find Nemo eventually. They live to like 100, 150 years old, and they all speak what I call surfer's English. They all sound like Jeff Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yo, dude, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Well, it turns out they live so long in the movie because they have no worries. They do what they need to do, but they do it without that kind of drag and stress that comes from turning things over and turning things over and turning things over. So even beyond the effect it might have on our bodies, on our health, where worry really gets us or the absence of worrying really helps us is in our brains, our minds, our souls. Lincoln once said, I love this quote, but I too often I think it's misunderstood. He said that most people are as happy as they make up their minds to be. Now, if Lincoln meant this, he was the worst example of this ever. He was a depressive his entire short, wonderful, inspirational life. He was not a happy person. And so I think the simple kind of thinking that says, you know what? Just make up your mind. Poof. You're happy today. You're happy today, right? Just make up your mind there. Right. Isn't that it? Isn't that simple? Maybe it is. I don't know. Explain it to me if it's that simple and I've missed it. But I think there's a different way of understanding what Lincoln said. I zone in on that phrase, make up your mind as a compositional element. Compositional. What are we making up our minds with each day? Healthy stuff, worrisome stuff. How are we making up our minds? And actually, I've literalized this as part of my regular practice. Whenever I wake up early in the morning and I find myself beset by worries, that's where I experience it the most. When I get out of bed and there's so much before me in the day and I don't know what to do yet and I don't know where to start and I just want to curl up and stay in bed. Well, what I do is I get out of bed and I literalize what Lincoln Med and I make my bed. (laughs) That's the first thing that I do. I don't have to. But I do. There is something about even that small act of creating a little bit of order, creating a little bit of empowerment, a little place where I can intentionally start to make up my day and make up my mind and say that, you know what, for all the things that are well beyond my control, this bed is not. (laughs) This bed can look the way that I would like it to. And that's where I can turn my hands to. On a deeper level, that's why I have a contemplative spiritual practice. For thousands of years, in so many traditions, teachers have been saying, sit in silence, watch your breath, understand without judgment the inner workings of your mind, come to a deeper awareness, look at what is, don't ask all the time, what if, what if, what if. And if you are asking what if in a worried way or in a fleeing away from this present moment, way come to recognize it at least come to see how you are running away from your life 
is means of investigating how worrying is different from thinking has been the most important tool that I have ever learned because for a long time I did confuse the two. I thought if I worried over something over and over and over again, I was a really deep thinker. Sometimes it's not so easy to tell the difference between the two. There is one way that we can. It is with time. If we feel that we are trying to tell the difference between really thinking something through and investigating how things arise in our life and just worrying about it and worrying about it and worrying about it, I would encourage you to ask yourself this. When you look back on the days or the weeks or the months and trying to discern, is it worry? Is it thinking? Ask yourself, have you made any progress at all with what you are wrestling with. And I'm not just talking about objective outward progress. I'm talking about inward progress. Do you feel any deeper sense of peace or connection to what might be worrying you? That is the difference. Worry is so spiritually corrosive because it says that there is no progress that we can make. We just stay there stuck. It says that nothing is worthy of our faith, ultimately. I have met many people over the years who profess all kinds of spiritual beliefs, And say they practice all kinds of deep spiritual practices. But functionally, it is really worry that is their higher power. It is worry that they give themselves over to day after day after day. It is this search for something that works beyond worry. Beyond our clutching or our strangling that drives so much of the spiritual path. One of my favorite articulations is this poem, The Piece of Wild Things, that some of you might know by Wendell Berry. Especially on this Father's Day, he talks about in this poem waking up in the middle of the night and sounding very much like a worried, anxious parent. And he's searching and finding something that he can trust more than his worry. He writes, When despair grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be I go and I lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief I come into the presence of still water And I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for me with their lights. For a time, I rest in the grace of this world. And for a time, I am free. Like Wendell Berry, Marlin, to find Nemo, has to work at a deeper trust than his worry. His first step is companionship. That's how he learns to trust. His mates, for most of the journey wonderfully voiced by Ellen DeGeneres, is Dory, the affably absent-minded fish. Now, her simple-mindedness is exactly her wisdom. Hear this one dialogue and hear a prophet or a Zen teacher speaking, taking apart a false understanding that Marlon has. Marlon is explaining to Dory why it is that he has to find Nemo and why it is that he thinks he's failed. He says, I promised him that nothing would ever happen to him. And Dory responds, that's a funny thing to promise. Why? He responds angrily. Because if you promise that nothing would ever happen to him, then nothing would ever happen to him. There is no such thing, Dory is saying, as a full protection clause in this life. 
Marlon already knows this, that things go wrong and sometimes things fall apart. But worrying over doesn't make it any better. Dory has a wonderful, simple mantra that reminds me of the words that we say here each week. When beset by trouble, her simple, wonderful response, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. One conscious step and one conscious breath just underwater. Just keep swimming. See, when Marlon learns to act ultimately from love rather than worry, he can do great things. He can face sharks. He can face swarms of jellyfish. He can take the adventure of his lifetime that he did not know he had in him because he has learned to trust that there is something deeper than just his worry and control. A deep and fearless love that motivates healthy risk will always trump our worry. When any of us love things or love another person or love this life fearlessly enough, we are doing the opposite of worrying. We are not strangling. We are giving ourselves away. When we can love fearlessly, we do not have time to worry. There just isn't that time left over. Ultimately, it is this way of living that unites him with Nemo. Even beyond just his son, he is united again with life. And that's the other part of that Jesus teaching that I love so much. Jesus goes on to say, consider the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Consider how they are fed. Consider how your heavenly father feeds them. Now, my experience of the heavenly power, my cosmology is very, very different than thinking that God is somehow up there playing sort of heavenly traffic cop, making sure that everything is taken care of down here. That's not my understanding. But I do think this teaching is still wiser than its cosmology might play on. Jesus is saying to those people who are worrying anxiously, look around you. Get outside of your own head. Look at the natural things of this world. Look at what is going on. Look how much works. Look how much sustains itself day after day after day after day that you have absolutely nothing to do with. Look how much works that you don't have to control and you don't have to worry about. Wendell Berry would say, we don't have to burden our lives with forethought of grief. When we do burden our lives, we end up paying a very steep price and a very steep penalty. Just think for a moment. Just think for a moment here of all the countless little things that had to go right just for you to be here today. Your alarm had to go off. You had to wake up on time. You had to have your cup of coffee. For some of you, I know you wouldn't be here if you didn't have coffee already. That's why we have it for you in the back. Now, even trace it beyond that. You wouldn't be here if your parents didn't meet. And your parents' parents didn't meet. And your parents' parents' parents didn't meet. Think about the countless, I mean, it's not even millions, countless numbers of things that had to go right so you could be here today and realize that most things, not everything, most things work out. A colleague of mine used a great phrase this past week. She said, and I can't remember where she heard it from, or I'd tell you. 
She said that as much as things fall apart, and sometimes they do, and when they do fall apart, we have to pay attention, especially to those things that when they fall apart, hurt the hearts and hurt the lives of our brothers and sisters. But my colleague used this wonderful quote, that things also fall together. Things fall together a lot. We pay more attention, of course, when things fall apart, because it tends to hurt, and we should pay attention to what hurts. But we should not refuse to see all the things that just work. All the ways that our lives fall together. Again, if you're having a difficult time with this concept, think about all the things that had to go right this morning just for you to be here. Think about all the things that will go right for you later today and recognize sometimes that is just the nature of life. Ultimately, the way to overcome worry. There's so many things in the spiritual life is gratitude. When we do not take the countless number of things that go right, the way that things fall together, we live grateful lives. And when we live grateful lives, we do not overlook anything. Things or people when they fall apart, or things or people when they fall together. Gratitude helps us trump worry and trust something deeper than what we can control or over and over and over and over again. Think about. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Higher spirits, higher law, just the plain old organization of things that makes this day possible. May we recognize your holy indwelling in this time and in this moment. May we train our eye and tune our hearts not to overlook all that falls together. May we not take for granted this life, worrying and worrying and worrying away our days so that we are never present and able to see that the first reason that our hearts can be hurt, that the first reason that we are injured when things fall apart is that things truly can and things truly do fall together as well. May our hands and our hearts be put to that work in gratitude and love and action that this day we will open our eyes and tune our hearts to the deeper harmony of things and find our song linking up with the great song. Amen.